What is good, everybody? I hope you all are having an amazing day. We are taking uh, just a, a quick little intermission from going through our walkthrough on the Gospel of John because I've just finished up a couple of books that uh, have really, really made an impact on my view of, of certain books in the Bible and my view of ways in which we interpret and imply and apply Scripture. And this topic is actually really important. Um, I, I don't want to dive too much into it because I'll dive into it when I talk about this particular book. But I, I've got two books today that I want to share with y'all. Uh, I've been reading a couple more books throughout the last couple months, but these two really, really um, made an impact on me in a, in a very positive way. And so I wanted to share them with y'all because anytime I come across good resources, um, I want to share them with as many people as I can because I want as many people as I can to know as much as they can about God's word. And uh, I think that's ultimately the, the point of this podcast as well. And so um, I wanted to take an episode and just quickly update y'all on some of these books that I finished. And real quick, uh, for this episode, I, I would probably advise no children. If you're listening with children around, just, you know, plug their ears, put in some headphones, because uh, we'll be getting into some topics that aren't really terrible. It's just probably shouldn't have children listening. And especially for this first book that we're going to be talking about. And this first one is actually a commentary on the Song of Songs, or maybe in your Bible it's called the Song of Solomon. And the book is the commentary on the Song of Solomon by Trimper Longman III. And this commentary, it goes verse by verse in what many would say is probably the most uh, confusing book and the most seemingly out-of-place book in the Bible. If you've ever skip through the uh, the Song of Songs in your like Old Testament Bible reading plan and wondered, well, this doesn't seem like every other book in the Bible. <laughs> this doesn't have, you know, prophecy and it's not talking about, you know, Israel and their journey. It It really does seem out of place in a sense. It, it doesn't, it doesn't on the surface seem to kind of fit into the larger narrative of the Old Testament story. And for many of us that read through the Song of Songs, we uh, we kind of get a, a weird take that we walk away with oftentimes, right? If, if you're just if you're just someone who just without any prior knowledge or um, a teaching that someone told you of what the Song of Songs means, and you just sit down and just read through the Song of Songs through the like seven or eight chapters. I would probably bet that most people would say that this book feels out of place. And one thing you you will notice if you just have a surface level reading of the Song of Songs is that on the surface, it has a lot of intimate and sexual language. L let me just read a, a couple of <laughs> verses that I just quickly grabbed scanning through these chapters in the Song of Songs, uh, one of the very first ones we see, it says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Here's another one. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Another one. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh, 
that lies between my breasts. Another one, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. There's another one. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Here's another one. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. <laughs> so, <laughs> look, on the surface, when you're reading this, you can get a picture of the imagery at play here, right? You have a man and a woman throughout the Song of Songs. They're talking about each other. They're talking back and forth, and they're constantly fawning over each other and their appearances and their desire to to take each other and their desire to make love. And that's the surface level reading. And because of this language, right, matched with an early church uh, kind of historical desire to push a purity culture. This has led many throughout church history to take different interpretations on the Song of Songs. People have tried to figure out what are we to do with this, given what seems to be just an overt, very, very sexual book that talks about sexual, sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. Given that, and then also given this drive throughout church history to want to talk about purity and to want to put away the desires of the flesh. How are we to interpret the Song of Songs? And one of the more popular interpretations that uh, if you have done any sort of study in the Song of Songs, uh, you have probably heard or you may even hold is that the Song of Songs is actually talking about Christ in the church, where the male that is cast throughout the Song of Songs is actually an interpretation or a, a symbolic image of Christ himself, and the woman is an image of the church. And interpretations like these fall short, however, in many different places in the Song of Songs, as Tremper Longman goes to point out in his commentary. Uh, but when you just look at the text for what it is, it gets really awkward and weird, and you're having to do a bunch of flips and spins and hurdles in order to try and say that, that God is being cast as this man who is describing how his church's breasts are <laughs> like, a, like a palm tree with its fruit and how he desires to climb that tree and grab on to its fruit. You can understand, especially when you apply this interpretation to all the different instances throughout the Song of Songs, how this gets really weird, really awkward, and it really doesn't make much sense in that interpretation. But what Trimper Longman suggests in his commentary is that the best reading of the Song of Songs is just a simple, straightforward reading, recognizing that this is a collection of poems that describe the beauty and passion of love and the physical acts that follow between a husband and his wife. 
And it's funny because for some, especially those who grew up in a church community that highly discouraged any and all views of sexual intimacy or sort of fleshly desires in marriage, this reading of the songs will feel very uncomfortable. But Scripture has always celebrated and commanded sex within marriage. You can't find a single verse that condemns passion and desire for your husband or your wife. And the Song of Songs is a celebration of the passion and the desire that should be shared within marriage. It doesn't just point it out as something that could be there. It points it out as something that should be desired and that you should want to emulate within your marriage. And this commentary does a great job at pointing out the many places where ancient poetic euphemisms and language are used to denote sexual and intimate desire between a husband and a wife. But it also does a great job at rejecting and cautioning against making every single word sexual in nature. Because there are some people who go really, really far with sexualizing the Song of Songs. But he tracks the imagery of certain things throughout the poem and points out where they get developed and used later on. And he discusses the main interpretations that have historically been held and breaks them down at their weak points. All in all, this was a really, really good commentary that helped me not to be scared of the Song of Songs, but actually see the beauty that it holds and the importance that it holds for believers to show them that passion and desire for sexual intimacy within marriage is actually something that is pure, that God wants for you. It's something that should be celebrated within marriage. And honestly, it, this commentary really changed my view on the Song of Songs because I, I held the interpretation that it was talking about God in the church. And honestly, I held that because I never really read through the Song of Songs. I was just told by you know my pastor in years past that this is what it meant. But just reading through it by myself and then reading through it alongside this commentary and how he points out certain things and actually gives you evidence for those things, it has changed my view on the Song of Songs. And honestly, I'm glad it has because it's shown me that this sort of desire within marriage is not just something that is allowed, but it's something that is celebrated and that every single couple within their marriage should be pursuing. So I highly recommend uh, getting this commentary, The Song of Solomon by Trimper Longman III. Uh, I think it was like 30, 40 bucks, but I promise you it is well worth the money. And uh, it will definitely change your view on how you're supposed to behave and desire each other within your own marriage. Um, I, I do plan on probably doing a little walkthrough because the Song of Solomon is so short. Um, I plan on probably doing a walkthrough uh, once we get about halfway through John's Gospel just so we can take a little break there. Uh, but let's get on to the next book. This one is a more serious take. And this one actually it makes an impact on how we interpret scripture and how we apply it. Uh, it's called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, Exploring the Hermeneutics of Cultural Analysis by William J. Webb. Uh, and this book was so, so good. It was really, really good. Um, it wasn't a thrilling read <laughs> because it's talking about hermeneutics, right? Most books based on hermeneutics 
aren't thrilling, gripping reads. Uh, but if if you desire to learn more about Scripture and, and how Scripture should be applied in our modern world, or just in the world in general, uh, this is definitely a great read. Um, it was It was good in that it gave some well-thought-out guidelines to help us understand how we should be applying Scripture today. Now, you may be thinking, why do we, why do we need a guideline or a hermeneutic to tell us how to apply Scripture? It's God's eternal Word, right? So just do what it says. Well, the problem with that is, is if you read Scripture enough, you'll understand that that's not exactly right. We, we don't just do what it says. And let me explain. We understand what it says. We understand that God's word is eternal, but we also understand that God's word was written to a certain people at a certain time. And many places in scripture, he was commanding those particular people at that particular time to do particular things. And so when it comes to how Christians actually apply scripture, there are those who will say, the Bible says it, that settles it. And this is used to say that if the Bible says something, that means that we do it no matter what, that the commands are always universal and the context does not matter. And this simply does not work, since there are many, many commands in Scripture that we do not apply in our modern context. And the reasoning is, is that, well, you know, that's just what they did in the past. We, we recognize for certain things that there were commands that were given to a specific people in a specific context to fit very specific needs, and that if that context and that people and those needs are not in play now, then there's, there's no reason to follow that command because that command is no longer achieving the thing that it once set out to do. Some well-known examples are things like this. Romans 16.16 16. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, we, we don't greet people with holy kisses today. We don't look at this command by Paul. I mean, it's in Scripture, right? It's in the book of Romans, which in that very same letter, there are many things that we view as universal that we always apply. Yet this command, we don't. But it's not, as just, it's not just as simple as saying the Bible says it. That settles it because this the Bible says greet each other with a holy kiss. But I don't see anyone greeting each other with a holy kiss, at least in, in the Western Christian context. We don't view this as universal. Here's another one. This is a, a very big debate in some Christian circles. In 1 Corinthians 11, we look at the head coverings, right? We look at the head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11. And you'll have those that say, um, a couple chapters later in 1 Corinthians where Paul says that women uh, should be silent and not speak in the church gatherings. They'll say, ah, this is a universal command. This means that women cannot teach. But when it comes to the teaching on head coverings, just a couple chapters earlier, they say, ah, this is cultural, which means we don't have to apply this today. Well, what makes this cultural and the other not cultural? And I'm not here to have an episode about women in ministry or whether they should or should not be able to preach. I'm just talking about a consistent hermeneutic, a consistent way that we look at Scripture and say, this is how we determine what should be universal and what 
is cultural. This problem with the women in the head coverings is is a very big aspect of this. But also in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us that nature itself, in verse 14, nature itself teaches us that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him. But today in our modern context, no Christian is going to run around saying that it's a disgrace for a man to have long hair. In a lot of these churches that hold to, you know, places in 1 Corinthians that talk about women not speaking in the church gathering, and they say this is universal, God says it, that settles it. I've seen men with long hair in their churches, and I've seen women with no head coverings in their churches. But they apply these scriptures as cultural. And we need to ask ourselves, why? How do they come to that conclusion? Do they have a consistent hermeneutic that they can apply to each and every problem and say, this is cultural because of this hermeneutic? Or is it just a part of the culture in some things they've just kind of arbitrarily decided is cultural and others are not? These are questions that as Christians, regardless of your view on women in ministry or any other topic, if we're serious about applying God's word in a proper way, these are questions we need to be asking ourselves. Here's another one. Uh, When it comes to things like slavery, we have verses in the Bible that say, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. That's in 1 Peter. And then here in 1 Timothy 2, going to another (laughs) women in ministry text, but not focusing on the women in ministry part, in 1 Timothy 2, in verse 8, Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So in 1 Timothy 2, this command for men in every place, praying with lifting their hands and also women showing modesties in particular by not having braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, This is just a few verses before Paul starts talking about he does not allow a woman to exercise authority over a man. That command for the women is seen as universal by certain Christian groups. But the few verses before talking about women not having gold or braided hair to show modesty, that's seen as cultural. We need to ask ourselves, why? How are we coming to these conclusions? And are we coming to these conclusions because we have a a structured way of uh, analyzing this? Or are we coming to these conclusions simply because that's what feels good for us and that's what our culture says? Because many Christians just take these things for granted as things that we don't have to do. But they never ask the question of why. Why do we just accept certain commands as cultural? and therefore don't apply them today, and others as universal, and apply always, even when these things are in the very same passages. Now, this book, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, this book suggests a hermeneutic, which is a fancy way of saying a method of interpretation and application of how we can get a bit closer to understanding what commands God meant for a specific people at a specific time, and what commands 
God meant as universal for all humanity for all time. And he lays out, I can't remember exactly, he lays out like 14 or so different hermeneutical standards that we can look to a text and apply to. Sometimes just one or two of the hermeneutics, sometimes all of them, to see how they how they match up and if these are things that should be taken as cultural or not. Uh, but the the main thing that he does is he has a main hermeneutic that for the sake of the book, he applies to three main topics, three main topics of controversy throughout church history, which one is slavery, the second being women and their role in the home and culture and church, and the third being homosexuality. His main hermeneutic is what he calls a redemptive spirit hermeneutic. And in short, it's the idea that, that scripture speaks on a given topic within its cultural setting. And if scripture's stance on this topic is moving toward a redemptive slash less strict stance, as scripture progresses through time, then it's a good indicator that God's desire is to move humanity toward a freeing stance on that particular topic. That might have been confusing, but he breaks down how this hermeneutic works for the three main points of slavery, women, and homosexuality. And I went into this book assuming that it was going to be highly progressive. And uh, honestly, it wasn't. And that makes me, that makes me actually really glad. But, but let me just break down the three main points to help you get a better idea of how this hermeneutic works. Uh, to start with slavery. He points out how slavery, especially in the Old Testament times, it was the cultural norm, right? You look at all the cultures surrounding Israel, and slavery was just the norm. Everyone had slaves. Slaves were ubiquitous. But as Webb points out in his book, Scripture doesn't affirm the culturally normal version of slavery it finds itself in. Scripture starts by commanding changes to the institution of ancient slavery. Old Testament scripture says that you can no longer freely abuse and kill your slaves. It says that you no longer can just keep them captive forever. You must let them go every seven years, even if their debts are not paid off. Scripture gives laws that prohibit Israel from returning a runaway slave from foreign nations, and there's many more things in the Old Testament that is changing the institution of slavery that Israel found itself surrounded by for the better. It is moving toward a redemptive spirit where the Bible is moving toward a direction of loosening the bonds of slavery in its cultural context. And as the Bible moves on into the New Testament, we get people like Paul who add on to this and say, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer man, woman. There is no longer slave or free. We're all one in Christ. So this redemptive spirit hermeneutic shows that God's ultimate plan for slavery is to abolish it because he is moving throughout the entire corpus of Scripture. He is moving away from what the world had set in stone. And he is moving towards freeing people within this institution of slavery. Now, this redemptive hermeneutic, as Webb points out in his book, does not apply 
to the issue of homosexuality in Scripture. And this is where I was actually shocked reading this book. I was shocked and I was pleased. And he, it, it makes complete sense. The, the method that he is using in this hermeneutic to say these things are cultural, these things are universal, these things are most likely cultural, these things are most likely universal. When he applies this to the issue of homosexuality, he points out a few things. First thing is he points out that when Scripture first talks about homosexuality in Leviticus, homosexuality in the ancient culture surrounding Israel at the time was levels worse than it is today. <laughs> you may think that, that homosexuality and how people are acting is really bad today compared to ancient cultures. That is not the case. Ancient cultures, their indulgement in homosexuality, especially within pagan cultures, was levels and levels higher than what it is today. And Scripture's response was not to loosen the binds of the view of homosexuality. Scripture doesn't say, oh, you know, homosexuality, yeah, you know, it, it, when you do it, just make sure you do it this way. That's not how it is. When Scripture talks about homosexuality, all the way from the Old Testament, all the way up to the New Testament, every single time, Scripture's response was to say it is evil, and it is sinful, and it is wrong. At no point does Scripture loosen the binds of homosexuality or or soften its view and say, ah, you know, it, it's okay in these contexts. Never does that happen. And because that's the case, he points to his redemptive spirit hermeneutic and says, there is no redemptive spirit on the view of homosexuality throughout Scripture. The view has always stayed the same, that it is sinful and it is wrong and it goes against God's creation. So this hermeneutic is not one that just promotes a slippery slope where any and everything is allowed. It is one that gives a solid guideline to help believers know what commands are cultural and what commands are to be taken as universal. And he applies this to the issue of women in ministry. He applies this to other things as well. He lays out multiple uh, sub-hermeneutics, if you will that we can look to any particular text and apply these hermeneutics to try and get a better understanding of what is cultural and what is universal. And this is so important because as a church, when we are going to look at Scripture and interpret it and apply it, we can't just interpret and apply it by how we feel. We need to interpret and, and, and apply it by actual structured methods that are consistent. Otherwise, we create a religion of our own making. And so those are the two books I, uh, that's really impacted me throughout the last couple months. Uh, I hope the breakdown was good. I, I really do hope that you guys take a look at these books and read them for yourselves if you are interested. But other than that, I'll catch y'all next week. Peace.